This is the UK Energy Research Centre podcast. Hi, my name's Rob Gross, and I'm the director of the UK Energy Research Centre, or UKIRC. Welcome to the first of UKIRC's new series of podcasts, in which we explore a range of issues in the energy system and in energy policy. So joining me uh, right now for for this podcast, uh, we've got uh, Caroline Kazemko from the Department of Politics uh, at Warwick University and Anthony Froggart of Chatham House. And today's topic is Brexit and its implications for the energy system. This is an area where UKIRC has had a research ongoing now for a, a, a year or two. So I'm going to turn first to Caroline. Um, so why is Brexit a big deal for those of us that are interested in energy policy and in energy and climate policy? Uh, thanks very much, Rob. Um, it's really a big deal partly because of the moment that we are in in relation to climate change policy and the reports of people like the IPCC that remind us how urgent having policies in place are in order to be able to meet ambitious targets like zero carbon targets. So it should be all hands on deck at the moment, really. And in that sense, I guess Brexit has been a distraction in some senses in that it's required policy capacity. It's required the UK to replace institutions that it used to have under the EU. And it has caused a fair amount of uh, uncertainty at moments in time, although that may be lessening now. We've had the um, terms of the agreement set. Um, But it is really to do with the opportunity costs of focusing so much on Brexit when we could have been focusing on climate change policies. Okay, so uh, you you said the terms of the agreement. Um, So what what agreement is that and what what are those terms? Uh, And and why why do they matter to, to us here in the UK? Well, they are the new EU-UK trade and cooperation agreement and the terms that they set for energy and for climate change. So although neither of those two were sort of big issues necessarily in terms of why Brexit went ahead in the UK, they are covered actually in the uh, TCA, as we term it. Um, and they are covered uh, in a number of ways. The first way that we should really outline is is there is a commitment to climate change, a very strong commitment that sort of binds and, and sets as a principle, actually, the cooperation between the UK and the EU. But beneath that, there are terms that affect the uh, EU ETS and the UK's place in that. So the UK has had to leave the EU ETS, uh, which is a key policy for setting the carbon price in the UK, which is a policy for meeting uh, decarbonisation targets. But it also uh, affects things like uh, gas and electricity trading between the UK and the EU. So there's quite a few little details in there that are really pertinent for our UK energy and climate policy. Okay, I'm going to bring Anthony into the conversation. So Caroline mentioned the EU ETS or Emissions Trading Scheme, um, the UK has just launched its own ETS. 
hasn't it? Uh, so why can't we just have our own trading scheme and and not worry too much about whether we're in or outside the the EU ETS? Well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, we can, and in some ways we will. Um, we will, as you said, we've set up our own emissions trading system. It's advantage. There is an advantage to being linked and, and to have a, a larger system. It creates smoother trading. It enables us to engage uh, with different actors. It invade, basically allows a larger market. So within a UK-only emissions trading system, we will just be trading permits within players within the UK borders. I think what we would like to see, and I think is likely to happen, is that eventually the UK's ETS becomes linked to the European emissions trading system. And that is an option that we see in other countries. So, for example, Switzerland has put in place this approach. And so that would then widen our ability or, or the ability of the partners within the UK to trade. So I, I think in some ways we are in an interim basis uh, with the ETS, as we are with the other sectors. Um, it's not like we were part of the EU and then we're out of the EU. There is a whole new process that is being developed, both about defining our rules and, and how they operate, but there are also review periods across a, a range of different sectors, for example, fish or or in, in terms of the energy system, whereby within a a fixed period of time, they will undertake a review and see if the current approach is, is the most appropriate. So in terms of the ETS, we'll see once it's settled down the, the UK system and then whether or not we have a more linked approach to the EU, which would be most logical, or we could link to other emissions trading systems in other parts of the world, um, United States, for example. So yeah, it, it won't... I, I, would predict that it won't remain a, a UK-only isolated trading system for very long. So how long have we got then if um, if we wanted to link our new, recently set up, UK-only emissions trading system? Uh, and this is the way in which, uh, you know, permits for, for carbon for, for large emitters like, like factories or power stations can be traded between themselves in order to um, find a least cost way to reduce carbon emissions, or at least so, so, so the economic arguments go. So, so I get your point. If you've got a bigger market, you've got more players, more liquidity in the market, if you like. So you should be able to come to a, a more efficient solution because a, a factory in, in the UK or, or some emission savings in the UK could be traded against some emission, tra- some emission savings in Poland or Spain or anywhere else. And that's a that's a more efficient way to to do things. Should we choose to rejoin? How much time have we got to to make that decision? I don't think there is a time limit. I mean, I I, I think that they are there was suggestions that they wanted to do it sooner rather than later, and it was part of the early negotiations. In some ways, there was three options on the table during the Brexit negotiations. One was a standalone emissions trading system. Another one was one that was linked to the EU. And there was third, not having an emissions trading system and, and just go for some sort of energy or carbon tax. So up until late in the day, the middle option was on the table and then it was removed. But I, th- I think that there is a, a desire for that to happen. So maybe it's just about bedding in the UK's emissions trading system, making sure it works and then potentially expanding it. I would just say that there's interesting things to, to watch is one is 
The Prime Minister has said he wants to see this, the world's first net zero trading system within a net zero economy. Not quite sure what that means in terms of, but obviously the intention is eventually with net zero, so how are you trading trading emissions? So yeah, what direction is that going? And the second is the desire to expand it. So potentially have more sectors within the UK system. So farming, for example. Uh, and so again, do, what if we do that and at what speed we do that, does that require the the UK system to be adjusted to incorporate more sectors? And then what does that mean when we're linking to the ETS? So in some ways there is, as I said, there's a number of different moving parts. And at the moment we're in the, the sort of bedding in part, but we'll then have to see how quickly uh, and what direction we want to go. Is it UK wide first or is it linking to other countries first? So yeah, we'll have to see. Okay. Sounds like there's a lot of uncertainties and it presumably in part a political decision as well. Do you, how likely do you think it is that we would try and link to the EU ETS um, before the climate negotiations? at the end of this year, so the COP26 that many people are talking about? Uh, yeah, it was mentioned. There was, there was talk that this might be a good political statement of intent uh, prior to the COP negotiations, prior to, as you said, November. I wouldn't put money on it. I, I think it, we will have to see. I don't think it's probably a priority for either side to have that linked statement. Uh, but We'll see. It, it it could be an easy win, but I I wouldn't yeah I wouldn't bet on it. No, uh, I, I can see the political argument could go both ways. Perhaps uh, we want to be seen to be able to do things independently and on our own uh, without having to immediately um, uh, go back uh, into the arms of uh, of our near neighbours. Uh, Caroline, what's what's your thoughts about uh, some of these issues around the ETS and uh, the likelihood of um, of, of the UK's new standalone emissions trading system being linked back up uh, with, the, with the EU. How, how soon do you think that might happen? Well, I mean, my best guess, I suppose, will be as any, good as anyone's best guess. And, but in my mind, it would make some sense if they think about doing that slightly further down the road, actually. I mean, it would make a good cop gesture in many kinds of ways. But but in other ways, I wonder if the thinking that they have to do anyway and the consultation process that they will have to enter into anyway in order to tighten this new system so that it is aligned with net zero, I wonder if they might do all of that thinking at the same kind of time. So thinking about how to extend it to other sectors, thinking about how to link it up with other countries, well, most obviously, hopefully, the EU. Um, so the time frame on that that we initially had was that that would be sort of a within the next sort of year and a half. But since then, there's been some more um, uh, indications out there saying that that tightening won't happen until 2023, if possible, but then no later than 2024. So the all singing, all dancing new system, I don't think we'll really understand it, um, you know, its parameters until 2023 or 2024. So, I mean, there's there's less uncertainty because we now know what the UK ETS price per tonne of carbon is. It's, it's £50, but there is some uncertainty to the extent that we won't know what the new net zero aligned system is for a few years to come. All right. 
Uh, that's great. I'm going to move us on from carbon permit trading in a moment. But uh, Anthony, you're you're waving frantically at me and asking to come back in. Yeah, just one thing that maybe yeah, the direction that the conversation was going in any case, but it's just worth parking as a thought the question about the carbon border tax adjustment mechanisms. So the EU is very keen uh, for this to go forward. Probably by the summer, we'll see a clearer picture of what that means in terms of the the requirement for uh, countries to have a similar type of carbon pricing system, carbon uh, or energy pricing system, uh, to avoid uh, a tariff being put on imported goods. So in in terms of that's the direction that they're wanting to go, the UK is, I, I think, less keen on that. But we'll have to see, again, what happens later this year in terms of within the G7 and the COP26 negotiations. But it will just, yeah, I, I think it potentially increases the likelihood of having more link systemed, more harmonisation of prices, not just between the UK and the EU, but more generally. So I just, yeah, if this becomes a, a bigger political issue, it yeah tends to move everyone in a certain direction of, of more levelised fields in, in terms of carbon pricing. All right. So maybe there's a bigger, more global perspective on this, which is it's, it's might be very parochial just to talk about a UK only system, but it's it's quite parochial just talking about a European system. And the, the big prize would be to have a global carbon trading or carbon trading across the Atlantic or from the Atlantic across the Pacific, bringing different regions of the world together um let i wanted i do want to move on from carbon trading but i'm intrigued now by this idea of carbon border tax adjustments so just to kind of unpick and decode that um the eu could place a new tax on imports of high carbon steel for example that's been manufactured in china and place less tax or no tax on a import of steel that was made in a low carbon way using hydroelectricity in in Canada or or, or Norway is that an over I mean that is a simplification but is that roughly it yeah I think it's a good yeah it's a very good way of expressing it um, and as I said it, it, it not so likely to affect the UK immediately but it might be interesting or might have consequences in terms of if we are re-exporting. So let's say the UK imports steel from China uh, and then we yeah, re-export some of the, we, yeah, adjust that steel and re-export re, re it to the EU. Does that then apply to us in terms of carbon border tax adjustments? And how does that then work? So yeah, there's lots of interesting questions, but absolutely the I believe in the same way that when you had the ETS, when it was first established, wasn't necessarily that effective. The price wasn't set right. There was lots of loopholes in it. Yeah, we didn't directly lead to carbon reductions, but it did increase carbon literacy amongst many of the players. Uh, and over time, as the, the prices have been adjusted and we're getting higher prices and better systems, I think we're seeing tightening of, of the, the carbon market and therefore more people driving towards lower carbon. So it is becoming more effective. And I wonder if that's within the carbon border tax adjustment. 
be very limited to certain sectors, possible to easier to monitor them, create passports for particular goods that means you can trace things across the supply chains. So yeah, lots of interesting things that are being discussed, but a lot of this is being driven, or at least this, the carbon border tax adjustment mechanisms is being driven by the EU. So yeah, interesting where the UK will fit in this over time. So let's move on from uh, the international trade uh, in carbon and carbon prices on borders uh, and think a bit more about the implications uh, of Brexit for electricity prices and electricity consumers here in the UK. So we've left the European energy market. Um, The trade and cooperation agreement makes provision for us to improve uh, the trading arrangements or to rejoin the trading arrangements. Caroline, um, rejoining the internal energy market, that's about as likely as Britain winning Eurovision, isn't it? <laughs> well, again, I'd say that um, there's a reasonably slim chance uh, of that happening. Um, that's my take on it, I have to say, particularly just in terms of the way that the overall relationship seems to be going at the moment. Um, so what's happened is, so we've left the internal energy market and we're trading on something called default arrangements and they're just slightly less economically efficient arrangements. Um, and so thus far, as far as we can tell, uh, that's not had a good impact on prices. So there's been some price spikes and some divergence between GB electricity prices and, and EU electricity prices. And so that is something that that's on watch at the moment. I know that the House of Lords Subcommittee for Energy and Environment is encouraging uh, bays to do something about that. And of course, they have left that open uh, in the agreement. So it says that there is uh, a commitment for both parties. So this is in the uh, trade and cooperation agreement. We're back to that. There's a commitment for both parties, the UK and the EU, to develop and implement new efficient trading arrangements by April 2022. So we're in this default, less efficient arrangement period at the moment. And then by April 2022, so just under a year, there should be a new, more efficient trading arrangement. But beyond that, the details of that are, are pretty scarce. Okay, so so what we're looking for here, you know, it, to try and draw an analogy is to be, is it a bit like being able to to reduce those customs checks that are being done on uh, on on goods at the border, um, and and why is that a good analogy, or is it something a bit different from from that? And for yeah, so it's not a tariff okay. thing. So you know, clearly, as in 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 other sectors of the economy where there are some trade issues ongoing at the moment, it's been less to do with tariffs and more to do with the rules under which you may trade. And in this case, obviously, we're talking about the trading of electricity between the GB market and the and the EU markets. Um, so it's those terms that are just less economically efficient than what we had in the system uh, prior to now when, when the UK was part of the um, EU internal energy market. Okay, so we can still buy and sell electricity uh, with our, with our neighbours, but the means and the, the market that we do that 
is um, the information is not there that allows us for those prices to be to be to be quite as as clear as they were before. So it's a it, the the upshot is probably that prices will be a little bit higher than they might otherwise have been. Well, most of the research that was done prior to this happening uh, suggested that that would be the case. Um, so research on the benefits of being a member of the internal energy market uh, were that there were um, savings per annum of somewhere between about 300 million and, and, and a billion pounds. And so the, those estimates varied quite a lot. Um, so the inference then is that prices will be slightly higher. And then you have to ask, will that be passed on to consumers or not, and and you don't want to see that happening because the whole point about meeting zero carbon in energy is that it's politically important to do so whilst maintaining affordability for consumers and also maintaining you know resilient markets and uh, energy security and and good access to energy markets. So getting that balance right politically is really important. In the okay, UK. and we've got until twenty twenty two to 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 do that. So only a year. Uh, only a year. Um, what what happens if we miss that deadline? I didn't see the the clause on that. I'm afraid in the uh, trade and cooperation agreement, but I don't know if Anthony uh, has seen uh, anything on that. Yeah, it's not so much. It, it's the next review period. So I th- I, I think it's like. The whole relationship is going to be ongoing, continue reviewing, etc. This is the next time, this is the next period in which we this can be discussed. But I, it's not if you don't meet meet this deadline, then that's over. I, th- I think the the key thing really to understand is that the energy market, and in particular electricity, under normal circumstances, it's not static. It's not like you've agreed one set of rules and that's it. If you look within the EU, we're on the fourth electricity market directive it's always changing and that pace of change is probably going to accelerate because of decarbonization there is increasing urgency towards changing the way in which the energy system and in particular on the really short term the power system operates and in some ways this is why interconnectors becomes even more important because they are a key tool for flexibility as we have more variable renewables i.e solar and wind on the grid flexibility becomes king. We need to be able to move electricity around to areas from areas of production to areas of demand as quickly, as efficiently, and as cheaply as possible. And so even though Caroline quite rightly points out that many of the studies showed there wasn't a significant impact in terms of us coming out of the internal energy market on consumer prices, I think that may be very different going for very different as we go forward, as renewables increase their overall percentage towards the UK and European electricity grids. If you look at the new targets that the UK and the EU have adopted, they are really ambitious. And again, as Caroline said, it's about affordability. We need to have system change that everyone can get on board with, which is not overly expensive. And there's no reason why more solar, more wind in and themselves are more expensive. As a cost of generation, solar is cheap as chips wind is going to be even cheaper. So it's not that generation cost that's going to be expensive, it's the system costs. And therefore, we need to have cheap, a cheap, efficient system of which interconnectors and efficiently operating interconnectors are a really important element of that. 
to that. They're a sort of backbone of the EU and the UK's electricity system. All right. So, so I think what I'd, one thing I take from that is somebody said it. I can't remember who it was. Brexit is never over. So we're, we're there's no fixed 2022 cut off. We're just going to keep being in this conversation, having this negotiation, and uh, and and this this relationship. You know, it is it is a, a, a divorce where the, the neighbours still live next door to each other, isn't it? Quite quite literally. Um, so let's explore this uh, business of, of interconnectors. So specifically, you're talking about electricity uh, power lines that run under the channel or the North Sea. And we had one in 1986 when we connected uh, to, to France uh, for the second time. And then we built a couple more to the Netherlands and Belgium. And despite Brexit, we finished one this year, didn't we? Another French uh, connector. Um, and we're still planning, uh, as far as I know, we're still planning to connect to to Norway, also outside the EU, but obviously inside uh, most of the um, um, arrangements that, we, that we've left. So interconnection, is this something that we can expect uh, to continue, uh, Anthony, you you said it's a good thing for renewables, helping us to build more renewables. And of course, we heard Boris Johnson talking about the wind that puffed the sails of Drake and being a Saudi Arabia of the North Sea and building lots of wind farms offshore. So, uh, Caroline, um, should we expect that we will continue to see new interconnectors being built, and do we need them? Uh, well, yeah. So the answer to do we need them is is yes, we do need them for various of the reasons that you have given and that Anthony's just given before that. Um, it's abs- flexibility is this absolute core to uh, renewable electricity markets, and so the more the merrier. Quite frankly, um, the only sort of slight issue has been that because of the change in trading arrangements um, and uh, moving from uh, implicit to explicit trading, which sounds very techy, but it just means that uh, units of electricity and uh, interconnection could have been traded together before, and now they're traded separately under these uh, sort of default arrangements that we're using until we come up with the new agreement, maybe in April 22, maybe later. Um, and because of that change in those rules, some of the interconnectors that have were planned have been suspended. So three of them have been suspended. So again, we don't quite know that we're back to uncertainty, really, Rob, aren't we? We don't quite know what's going to happen with those. Maybe they'll go ahead. Maybe they won't go ahead. Um, But it's another thing uh, that we should be keeping our eye on in terms of understanding what the sort of more medium term implications of of Brexit have been. Okay, so that conversation is going to continue as as well. Um, um, Investors tend not to like uncertainty. Um, is there anything we can do to make that environment more certain to, to help ensure that those interconnectors get built if we want them built uh, despite Brexit? Anthony, what's what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things. One is uh, not one to be nationalistic, but a lot of the, the rationale for the non or for the suspension of construction was those interconnectors to the to France. And that's in part around, if you can imagine an interconnector, so from the UK to France, 
we import electricity from France. Why do we do that? Because it's cheaper. So we're importing cheaper electricity and the the French want to export it to us because they can get more, they can get a higher price for their electricity. But what that means in France is that actually the prices go up because there's less supply because they're selling it abroad. And so that is of concern to the French power system and the, the regulator because actually they're no, they're exporting electricity from an EU member state to a non-EU member state and there's no actual requirement for them to do so under EU law. So it it it's important just to think about it in that context. It's not just down to us whether or not we build interconnectors, but I think if there is more of a market, then yeah, we will see more interconnectors being being built. There is more electricity flow because there's talk about electricity coming from Norway. You mentioned at the beginning Norway's thinking they're in the process of building interconnectors. That may well see that electricity from Norway goes into the UK and then flows back into France through a different route. It, it's just creating a a further avenue for electricity flows across the wider sort of continental Europe. So, yeah, lots of interesting things. And I do believe that as all countries in the EU decarbonize, and I think that's the key thing is, is that people do put in place renewables at similar paces, then there is a real advantage for everyone to having more system flexibility, which, as I mentioned, when the interconnectors are an important part of that. I think we could spend uh, another podcast on sources of flexibility and the growing share of, uh, of, of, of renewables. So I think um, just, to, just to wrap things up, um, it sounds to me, I think, as if on the emissions trading scheme, uh, the internal energy market, the construction of uh, new interconnectors, um, this is an ongoing uh, uh, conversation. Uh, a, a kind of Brexit is never finished, as, as I just said. I mean, Caroline, uh, I, I don't know if you feel able to, to answer this uh, question, or maybe it's an unfair one, but do you feel optimistic about uh, a, a kind of a, a more constructive, a more normal uh, relationship? Or perhaps if you don't feel optimistic or pessimistic, what would we need to happen in order to, to make that uh, relationship work? Um, well, I guess in terms of... Uh guess i suppose to me i'd maybe put that on its head a little bit because for me to understand what brexit means for the uk and we're specifically quite interested as in 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 uk and net zero and how you get the right policies in place so that you can meet those longer term targets it's been about how much work we've had to do to get back to to the pre-Brexit position, as it were. So sort of pre-Brexit, there was a certain price on carbon and there was a rules in place to trade and interconnection was was growing. And, and we were heading in a certain direction, which allowed a degree of sort of certainty then for investors and other people like local authorities who want to act in this space. So for me, it's kind of thinking about how much work do you have to do in order to to even stand still versus where you were before this process started. And I know you invited me to be optimistic and I'm not being optimistic yet. <laughs> but I think that, well, the recommendations are in our report are to really place the highest degree of emphasis and to allocate as much policy capacity as possible to closing out these areas of uncertainty 
as quickly as possible. But of course, that is a negotiation and it takes two sides. And um, there's clear intent, I think, on the UK side to to come up with those solutions. And we're just sort of recommending that as much capacity is put behind that as 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 possible so that we, you know, have some certainty, regain the position where we where we were and then get on to being zero carbon compliant, which is the really important thing here, I think. All right. Uh, Anthony, I'm sure you're a very optimistic uh, type of person. Any 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 thoughts on how things might go in the next few years? No, I'd, I'd agree with Caroline. I think it's the the key driver for change is going to be decar- is going to be decarbonisation and net zero. And as long as the UK and the EU have similar overarching objectives in this area, then issues around emissions trading, issues around use of interconnectors, shouldn't diverge too significantly, and therefore we will manage those slight differences that exist. I think the problem will be if there is a divergence of that overarching objective and the pace of change that people are seeking or different countries are seeking. And I think then you would see some of these joint mechanisms potentially becoming more sticky or or unravelling. And that would be a problem in particular in relation to the urgency of, of, of climate change. So hopefully... Over the overarching similar objectives on climate change keeps everyone together and on track, and these other issues can be managed. Well, I'll take some comfort from that for for as long as net zero and the challenge of carbon uh, uh, climate change continue to be of equal importance. Both sides of the North Sea, uh, or both sides of the English Channel and the Irish Sea, uh, indeed, then there's some some hope that we'll we'll try and work together with our with our neighbours uh, to make it all work out. So. Thank you again to my guests, uh, Caroline Kazemko and Anthony Froggart uh, from Warwick University, Chatham House, respectively. Uh, Both of them UK Energy Research Centre researchers and part of our consortium. And I've been uh, Rob Gross, Director of UKIRK. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening. To find out more about UKIRK, you can visit our website at www.ukirk.ac.uk.